I've talked about this before on the podcast, but a few years back, I scrapped the whole idea of New Year's resolutions. Instead, I started making a list of what I wanted to accomplish in the year ahead. And I've done this each of the past five years. Last year, actually, at the end of 2018, I sat back and I said, there's so much going on in my life. There's so much to be grateful for, so much to be excited about. But I said to my wife, I want to see the world. I want travel to be part of our lives. And more than that, I want it to be a part of our son's life. See, my wife and I never traveled much growing up. She grew up in Rochester, New York, so uh, they would go to the Finger Lakes or maybe up to Toronto for a long weekend, but that was pretty much it. And then I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so we'd spend a couple of weeks each summer, you know, down at the Jersey Shore. Maybe we'd go up to Boston for a week or Newport, Rhode Island. But usually those trips were tied into one of my dad's business trips. It wasn't like a, it wasn't really traveling. I went on one trip abroad when I was in high school to Italy, and it had a huge effect on me. And so we made travel a priority in 2019, and that included a big end-of-the-year trip with our four-year-old son to Paris. So on this week's episode, I want to talk about that trip, right? We've spent the week zigzagging across the city, and we dined out almost every meal. And so as you can imagine, I have some thoughts. I'm sharing eight insights from my trip to Paris that can help you market your restaurant here at home. Those, when we come back. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thanks as always for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So each week I choose a different topic. We explore that topic. We pick it apart. Hopefully by the end we come across some useful insights and then we finish up with an assignment, a short actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing the concepts we talk about here on the show because I believe information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. So, we booked our trip to Paris way back in April and spent the entire rest of the year saving up for that trip and making plans. It was really our first family vacation ever, and and usually uh, we use our time off to go visit uh, our extended family, um, either in Philadelphia, where my parents live, uh, or in Chicago, where my in-laws now live, uh, or Los Angeles, where my brother lives. But this was gonna be just the three of us, my wife and I, and our son, and obviously, Food is a big part of my life. Restaurants are a big part of my life. And so we knew that dining would be an important aspect of our trip. Plus, uh, hello, it's Paris. This is where fine dining was born. Great food is a big part of just everyday Parisian life. So as you can imagine, I went into the trip wide-eyed to the whole thing, trying to take it all in. And now we've been back a couple of weeks and I've had time to gather my thoughts to distill them down into something that I can share. For me, of course, that means a podcast episode. So as I promised at the top, here it is. I want to share eight things that I noticed on my vacation to Paris. Eight insights that I think will help all of us to be better at marketing our restaurants in the new year. Things to bring a little perspective to our day-to-day. The first thing that struck me, number one, most people, either the waiters who took care of us or the people behind the counter at some of the specialty shops, were so eager to engage with each and every customer. Now, bear with me because I want to give you a little context. 
We flew out of New York on December 23rd. We took the red eye and we landed in Paris on Christmas Eve. And we knew we probably wouldn't make it to dinner because we were taking the red eye and and we knew we'd be exhausted by the time we landed. So we planned our day accordingly, right? We took a cab from the airport to our Airbnb. We checked in, unpacked everything, and then we went out to lunch. After lunch, we decided to walk around our neighborhood. So we were staying in the 7th, just about three blocks away from the Eiffel Tower, and we decided to pick up some things for dinner. Our thinking was to get some bread and some cheese and some meats and pate and maybe some wine. And then for dinner, we would just put out a spread back of the apartment. The three of us would just pick on a light meal and then crash when it was time to crash. Our neighborhood, the 7th, was so gorgeous. It was picturesque little Parisian streets packed with all kinds of little specialty shops. So we went to the wine store first, which ended up being a good move because we started talking with the woman who was helping us pick out some wine. It turns out she was the one who owned the shop. And she not only helped us to choose a couple of bottles of wine, but then also made some recommendations. She said, oh, you have to go here for some cheese. And then for bread, go here. And then there's this uh, shop three blocks over that does this incredible pâté en croûte. So off we went with our wine in one hand and a list of shops to visit in the other. One after the next, we were blown away. The people in each of these shops were so excited to engage with us, right? So we spent maybe an hour walking in and out of all these little stores to get our food for Christmas Eve dinner, and not once did we feel unwelcome in a shop. Not once did we feel like we didn't belong or that we were unwanted. People were warm and welcoming. They were so hospitable, and I couldn't help but think about the way I'm treated most of the time when I walk into a store here in America. So I've got listeners here from all over the world, but the majority of our listeners uh, for Restaurant Strategy um, are here in the United States and Canada. So that's why I kind of bring this perspective, right? So when I think about what happens when I walk into a shop here in America or, you know, here in New York City specifically, I picture some minimum wage worker sitting behind the counter scrolling through her Instagram feed. She hardly looks up to welcome us, and she certainly doesn't put her phone away to provide that, that personal touch that we got in Paris. Which brings us to number two, which is related to my first point. Everyone in those shops were not only engaged, but they were knowledgeable about the products and excited to share that knowledge with us. Now, as an aside, remember as well that there was a language barrier we also had to contend with. I had learned just enough French to get by, but I didn't learn nearly as much as I'd wanted to, and certainly I was far from fluent. But that didn't stand in the way of us connecting with these merchants. So again, compare that to the average experience you have here in America. To start, even in the larger cities here in the United States, you rarely find specialty shops like the ones I'm describing. Instead, Americans, I think, are used to going to supermarkets. Even here in New York, though our supermarkets are considerably smaller than what you might find out in the suburbs, it's still one-stop shopping. You go to one place to get your fruits, vegetables, bread, milk, eggs, meats, seafood, and so on. Rarely do we go to a great cheese shop for cheese and a great butcher to get our steaks and a bakery for our bread. The interesting thing was we were doing all of our shopping in actually a relatively small area about the size of an American supermarket. We were just dealing with a variety of different merchants and each one specialized in a different set of products. Thought of it a different way, we were shopping with a bunch of different experts and I was struck by how different that experience was. They truly were experts, professionals. True, often we were engaging with the owners themselves, but not in every shop. And still, the workers acted as if they wanted us to be there, as if they wanted to be there. There was pride for the product. 
They were knowledgeable about the products they were selling, passionate about them, and that made such a difference. So we were in a meat shop, uh, you know, shopping for charcuterie, and the guy behind the counter spoke no English. And I was trying to ask about the differences uh, between the different charcuterie, uh, but then I didn't understand the words he was using to help me, and we were stuck. Nope. He sliced off a tiny sample and let the products speak for themselves. Food became the language that we had in common, and so we stuck with that. So those were the first two insights, and again, they go hand in hand. I was struck, number one, by how warm and welcoming everyone was to us, and number two, how knowledgeable and passionate they all were. They had pride for the product they were selling and a strong desire to share that knowledge and passion. Number three, a Michelin star really means something over there. So for those of you who aren't familiar, a little history on the Michelin Guide, because it goes all the way back more than a century. So go with me to the year 1900. Back then, there were fewer than 3,000 cars on the roads of France. To increase demand for cars, and accordingly, car tires, two brothers by the name Edouard and André Michelin, who owned a car tire manufacturer, decided to publish a guide for French motorists. They called it the Michelin Guide. In the beginning, they distributed nearly 35,000 copies and they gave it away for free. It provided useful information to motorists, such as maps and tire repair and replacement instructions, um, car mechanic listings, hotels, petrol stations, and you guessed it, restaurants. In the years that followed, they started publishing guides for other nearby countries like Belgium and Algeria and Tunisia uh, and then some of the countries up in the Alps and the Rhine like, like Northern Italy and, and Switzerland and the Netherlands, uh, eventually Germany, Spain, Portugal, Ireland and the British Isles and so on. It continued to grow in popularity until 1936, which is when they introduced the star system. So thousands of restaurants were included in these guides with information about uh, location, hours, menus, pricing, but they needed a way to start demarking the very best restaurants out there. So they created the star system, one, two, and three. One star meant a very good restaurant in its category. Two stars meant excellent cooking worth a detour, and three meant exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. Now, it sounds understated, but even getting one star is an accomplishment, let alone two or three. There are only a handful of three-star restaurants around the world, so it is a big deal. There are currently nine different guides that cover various countries around the world and 19 different guides that cover the big cities of the world. So here in America, there are five different markets that are represented by a Michelin guide. There's New York City, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and then San Francisco and the surrounding Bay Area. I've dined in and worked at a handful of Michelin-starred restaurants here in the U.S., and it's often a point of pride for those of us who work in fine dining. But after visiting Paris, I'm embarrassed by many of the Michelin-starred experiences that I've had in, here in the United States. They hardly compare. And so that's point number three. Even just one Michelin star really means something over there. It means a certain quality of food, sure, but also a level of service that I've found is unparalleled. We had two meals in Paris uh, at restaurants that each held a Michelin star, and those experiences, I'm not kidding, rivaled some of the three-star meals that we've had here in New York. The attention to detail, the precision of service, the, the quality of ingredients and flavor, I suddenly got it. When the guide gifts you with a star, that should mean something. And I've heard this before from friends and colleagues, but that didn't really get it until I was there in Paris dining. It was extraordinary. Now, number four, 
Most of the restaurants open at like 7 or 7.30 at night for dinner, and they do just one turn. Compare that to many restaurants here in the United States, certainly in larger cities, uh, we operate by doing two turns at least. Obviously, the finances are built very differently, and I wonder what we're doing wrong here in the States. We obviously operate with razor-thin profit margins by doing maybe a turn and a half to two turns every night. And there, they seem to survive with just one seating. At least, that was the case with the fancier restaurants. So I'm wondering, what's up with that? Now, I will say, the one thing I did notice is that there's much less manager presence over there. The maitre d' pretty much does everything. Manages the front door and jumps in to assist with service, pours wine, clears tables, takes orders, and so on. And if you remember back, I spoke about this last week when I was sharing my thoughts about uh, future trends that I saw in dining. And I said, this was something that places were going to have to figure out. I think payroll has gotten very heavy at the top. So the question is, how can you do more with less? How can you empower your staff, the, the waiters, the busters, the runners? How can you empower them to take charge so that they feel a sense of ownership for the restaurant? So that leads us then to the next insight. Since returning to New York, we've obviously been sharing the details of our trip with everyone. People want to know all about Paris, what we did, where we went, what we saw, and obviously we've been telling them about our various meals. So number five, everyone is asking about how we picked our restaurants. And I suddenly realized it's a great question and it has direct applications to what we do day to day marketing our restaurants. So I will tell you how we picked our restaurants and then we're going to break it apart and see what we can learn. First of all, how did we select our few great meals? But then also, when we were just walking around, what made us choose one place over another? So first and foremost, you have to know, word of mouth was key. We asked a bunch of people for recommendations. We compiled one big list and then figured out where we were going to be and what restaurants we might easily be able to get to. We knew we wanted to do two big meals the week that we were in Paris, two Michelin-starred experiences. One of them we knew would be for Christmas dinner, so that was actually kind of easy because our choices were limited. Now, the advice that I always give tourists who are traveling to New York on holidays is to find a hotel with a great restaurant inside the hotel. More often than not, I think you're going to find that they will be open. So I took my own advice. That's exactly what we did. We started with the nice hotels and eventually ended up um, uh, making a reservation at the Four Seasons at their one-star restaurant, Le Georges. Our other big meal out was a bit more interesting and a bit roundabout. There's a story. So as you all know, I live here in Brooklyn, and there's a restaurant that we love called Olmsted. About a year ago, I read an interview with the chef, Greg Backstrom, who was talking about his newest restaurant that just opened called Maison Yaki. It was a nod to two different cuisines that he loves, classic French bistro fare and yakitori. So in that interview, he talked about some of his inspiration, and one of his favorite places in Paris, he said, was this tiny place called Café Constant. He loved it so much, he actually replicated their signature mosaic floors in his new restaurant that he just opened in Brooklyn. So when we went to look it up, we realized that place was right around the corner from the Airbnb we had rented. And in fact, we went to lunch there as soon as we got checked in on Christmas Eve. But after doing a little bit more research, we also learned that the chef of that place, a guy named Christian Constant, he owns two other restaurants in that same block. One of them was a well-received one-star restaurant, so we decided to book a reservation there for another night when we were in Paris. And to be honest, 
we had such incredible meals at both of those restaurants, both uh, the casual place and the fine dining restaurant, that we eventually made a reservation for his third restaurant, uh, which is wedged in between the casual place and the fine dining place. We ended up going there on two different occasions later in the week. That place was called Le Cocotte. And I'm not lying, they served the best lobster bisque I've ever had in my life. It wasn't thick and heavy with butter and cream. It was, it was light, actually, but packed with flavor. Now, we did another destination meal later in the week at Restaurant Pirouette, which is up in the first, and that was a recommendation from another food photographer I know here in the city, and that was also incredible. But every single other meal were just impromptu decisions. Okay, so corner bistros in whatever neighborhood we found ourselves. And the thing is, there are bistros on just about every corner in Paris, but not all are created equal. So how do we make our decision? Well, we looked at the menu, not just what was being offered, but how it was designed, the paper it was printed on, how it was displayed. We looked inside to survey the crowd. Was it busy or not? Was it filled with tourists or locals? Now, for many of these meals, it didn't really matter where we ate. But with just a week in Paris, I also knew that I didn't want to waste a single meal. I wanted each one to be unique, and I wanted each one to be good. So now think about that, and I say this often, and I know maybe it's starting to sound a bit like a, just an exercise, but everything about your restaurant is communicating something to a potential diner. So now when we were out there walking around the city, we were hungry and we needed to eat. We were going to give our money to one of the three or four restaurants that we saw. The question was, which one was going to get our money? Now put yourself in the shoes of someone walking by your restaurant or driving past your restaurant. They are hungry. They need to eat. How can you make an impression upon them? How can you secure them as customers? Now, number six, very few nice restaurants that we saw had bars, at least not like we have here in America. So most places here, certainly in New York City, have a big bar where people can enjoy a drink before dinner. The back bar is filled with tons of different spirits on display, but not so much over there. If there was a bar with seats, there were usually people dining at the bar. Um, otherwise, it was just a bar that you'd walk up to. People would stop in for maybe a quick beer or an espresso or a glass of wine, but then they'd pay and be gone. But those were at some of the little bistros. Very few of the nicer restaurants had bars. And it was something that I always sort of took for granted having grown up here in the States. Culturally, that's, that's kind of what we do. Certainly as New Yorkers, that's what we do. We, we arrive early, we check in for our reservation, and then we head to the bar for a drink but not so over there in Paris. At the nicer restaurants, we were promptly seated and offered something to drink at the table. And it was always champagne that was recommended. So that's what we ended up doing. We started off with a couple of glasses of champagne. Um, and even now, I don't know if I could have ordered, let's say a Negroni, uh, probably, but I'm not sure. I just went with wine at every meal because that's what was being presented. So the first lesson here is that if you have something for sale, you have to let people know it's for sale. Otherwise, how will they know to order it? And the second lesson, though, is that your bar is precious real estate. It's a place where you can drive off-peak revenue, so whether that's happy hour or late night, um, but it's also a place to drive revenue before the meal. So when I was uh, when I used to maitre d', uh, I would often build uh, the reservation book with like a 15 or 20-minute wait, right? So pretty much everyone had to wait for their table after about 7 o'clock. I did that not to piss people off, but because I think number one People like knowing that they've come to a busy place, that they're in a place where other people want to be. It makes the place seem more desirable. It makes them feel more grateful to have gotten a table there. 
But then number two, and it's a very real thing, it does drive revenue. So let's say a couple comes in, they check in for their reservation. I say, oh, your table's not quite ready yet, but please come into the bar, grab a drink. We'll be with you in just a few minutes. So they do. They come in, they check their coats, they make their way to the bar. They order the drink. You know, they look at the, the cocktail list. They order the drinks. By the time the bartender makes them and gives them to them, they sip for a little bit. That's about 15 minutes. And, and I think there's a 15 or 20 minute cushion uh, that people will go along with. When we get into 25, 30, 40 minutes, yeah, of course not. That's when people start getting angry. But I think 15 or 20 minute cushion is not a bad thing. And they've had a round of cocktails then. That's 30 bucks on their check before they've even sat down. And then when they're greeted by the waiter, um, they're softened, right? They've got a drink in them. They can then be offered champagne, right? Um, it just makes good sense uh, in a, as a way of driving revenue. The interesting thing is France doesn't have that culture built in, but here in America we do. So let's make sure we're taking full advantage of it. Number seven, the reservation systems that they use over there in Paris are glitchy and often confusing. And no, I'm not just saying that because of the language barrier. The systems often weren't well integrated within the restaurant's website um, so that you clicked a link, but then it kicked you to another site. Uh, we also happened to be over there at Christmas, and so when we were booking our table, it was difficult to tell if places were offering a special holiday menu or just the regular a la carte menu or if both were available. Another thing, often when you were making a reservation, it was just a request. You submitted the time and the number of people in your party, and then they would respond and tell you whether they had room or not. So for as warm and gracious as many of the restaurants were, I actually found this to be particularly inhospitable. Now, obviously, every restaurant deals with this differently. Every platform handles it differently. But I was suddenly struck over there by, by how great the, the reservation systems are um, here in the United States. Uh, in particular, I think of uh, Resi, Talk, and Open Table. For those of you uh, who don't know Resi, for example, it's a reservation system. Um, it's really taken over a lot of the market share here in New York City. Um, a lot of hot new restaurants are on it. It rivals Open Table for sure. But if a reservation isn't available, it doesn't just say not available. It offers to add you to the wait list. Then if a table pops open, you'll get an email and you can click the link that's in that email to try and snag the table that just opened up. It's not a perfect system. Nothing is, but it's so much more hospitable than any of the systems that I saw in France. So why do I bring this up? Because remember, the process of booking a reservation is where the experience really starts for the diner, right? They've checked you out, they've done their research, they've compared you to your competitors, and then made the decision. They've made the decision to dine with you. That's the reason they've started the booking process. So we should make that as warm and inviting as we can. Now, number eight, finally, I want to talk about what it was like to travel and dine with my four-year-old. Now, each place handles this a bit differently, but kids, for the most part, were expected to dine and to dine well. There were no chicken fingers or pasta with butter. Instead, for example, at the Four Seasons, our captain highlighted a couple of items that were on the menu that children often like. But there was no simplifying the dish. Um, in one of the other restaurants, my wife ordered the, um, the filet rosini. Uh, so it was a filet mignon topped with foie gras and black truffle. And the waitress suggested that we could make a smaller children's portion of that exact dish. Well, we jumped at the suggestion. But check it out. Two things to note. Number one, when that little dish hit the table, we oohed and odd, our son included, because it looked identical to the larger dish that my wife had ordered, just a smaller portion. It was something special, something unique, and suddenly my son felt like such a VIP. But the other takeaway was this. The restaurant made more money 
by making the suggestion. Originally, we thought we would just share our food with our son. In fact, we had asked for a share plate so we could give him some of ours, which is what prompted the waitress's suggestion. It was a win-win all the way around. Introducing our son to new foods and new flavors was a big part of why we wanted to bring him along on the trip, and he was so adventurous. He tried escargot and steak tartare, Um, he had foie gras, he had langoustines, he had scallops, which he now loves, and black truffle, which he doesn't, but at least he tried them. Dining with our four-year-old was certainly a testament to his spirit, uh, and I guess our parenting, Uh, but more than that, we had great dining experiences because the staff wanted to make it special for us. And so again, you have an opportunity in your restaurant. Will you view children as a nuisance or as an opportunity? If not kids, then consider what else bothers you. Can you take something negative and turn it around to be a positive for your restaurant? I think if you do this, enough people will notice. I think people will reward you by giving you their business in the future and by talking about you to their friends and family. Now, if there's one larger final point to be made here, it's this. Word of mouth is a powerful tool when it comes to marketing your restaurant. This podcast is certainly a testament to that, right? No one in Paris knew what I did for a living. Certainly, they didn't know I had this podcast, nor did they know that I would use it to talk about my experiences. But here we are talking all about my trip. To that end, I'm sharing a whole bunch of links in the show notes, some of our favorite meals and shops that we visited when we were in Paris. Each of the places on that list went above and beyond to make our trip special, and so I'm rewarding their generosity by recommending them to all of you out there. If anyone out there does end up going to any of the places that I'm recommending, please send me a picture. You can email me, chip at chipclose.com. That's C H I P. K-L-O-S-E dot com or you can tag me on Instagram. You can find my account. It's Chip Close Creative. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. I think that would be a great way to keep passing it forward and make sure that you tell people uh, about the experiences that you have. Now for your assignment this week, it's in two parts. First, I want you to go somewhere totally new, someplace you've never been before. And no, it doesn't have to be some crazy fancy meal. Go to a sandwich shop if you want. But I want you to be working the entire time. Check out their website ahead of time. Maybe call and ask some questions ahead of time. When you get to the place, take a look around. Take in the neighborhood, the block, the front door, the signage. Is there a menu posted? Take a look. Think like a tourist. Uh, Would this entice someone in? And then go in and have your meal. At the end then, Consider who the meal was for. Consider, would you come back? Would you talk about this experience back at work or with your friends or with your family? And what exactly would you say? Then the second part of the assignment, I want you to do the same thing with your restaurant and really take stock of the entire experience and assess what others see when they look inside, when they call, when they finish their meal. And that's it for this week. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you like this week's episode, do me a favor and just share it with someone else who you think might get something out of it. So maybe that's someone who's heading to Paris and needs some recommendations. That's fine. Or maybe it's another restaurant owner, somebody who could benefit from some of the marketing lessons that you can uh, extrapolate out from this episode. I appreciate you being here and I look forward to having you back next week. Until then, have a great week.